Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. calling this sermon series the origin story kind of think you know uh, marvel comic books and all the different types of origin stories we see there on how superheroes became uh, what they became right so that's what we are doing we're talking about creation how god is the author and creator of everything and he made it good right the stuff in this world he made good um, we talked about how god made us humans with a purpose to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over the rest of creation, not domination, Um, to serve as governors, so to speak, to serve underneath our God, but to rule the rest of creation on his behalf. And now we're in chapter 3, where Adam and Eve uh, were tempted to become like God so that they wouldn't need him right? Uh, They were tempted uh, to to, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as they were, as they did so, then they were tempted to hide. That's what we talked about last week, to hide from each other, to hide from God. Um, And this week, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the further consequences of that sin and of their sin. But before I read... um, I wanted to say something, because actually I don't think I've ever said it in the life of the church up to this point, about why we say the word of the Lord and we respond by saying thanks be to God. And um, it can feel as if like some of that is just uh, Taylor being weird and liking to wear a collar and wanting high churchy things. Um, And I I get that, right? That is uh, maybe somewhat accurate, um, as somebody told me that my love language is liturgy. Um, But um, while it can be tempting to just go through the motions uh, with Scripture readings in response, the reason that we say this is the word of the Lord is to remind us that what we read is actually different than what we read if we were to just get up here and read a quote or to read Shakespeare or to read from the newspaper, right? We are articulating that this is an amazing thing that our God wants us to know him and gave us his word, revealed himself to us so that we might know ourselves, we might know this world, we might know him and his character most importantly, right? That's why we say this is the word of the Lord and we respond with thanks be to God because we're so glad to know it, right? So there's a way in which we can go through the motions when we do it, but I wanted us to at least remember why we're doing it um, so that we're tempted to fight that, uh, to fight that temptation to just go through the motions um, as, as we read God's Word. So um, we're going to read a little bit of the same passage we talked about last week, uh, just the, to give us a little bit of context. So we're reading from Genesis three fourteen, and then I'm going to finish this chapter Uh, for us as well. So if you would, please turn with me to page three. Um, We're slowly working. We've moved from one to two, and now we're in three. Um, And uh, and so turn with me to Genesis 3, 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the gate, uh, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Would y'all pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. And we pray, Lord, that, um, that as, uh, as we look at it together, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so, if y'all are paying attention and, and, and hearing the passage, uh, it deals a lot with the concept of curses, right, um, or, or cursing. And when we read it in the Bible, I doubt that we picture it exactly in the way that the Bible is describing or is saying, right? When we hear curses, we hear magic, right? Like where a witch puts a hex, right? A negative spell on someone or something, right? Example, like, like Sleeping Beauty, where the witch gets pretty upset that she's not invited to the dinner party. And so she's like, you know what? Aurora, when you turn of age, you're going to prick your finger on the, on the spinning wheel, and then you're going to die. Right? That's, that's what we think of when we think of curses. Or we think Harry Potter, where the wizards and, and the witches are uh, casting spells and, and causing things to do their bidding. Or maybe if, if magic isn't your realm, maybe you think more in the world of sports, like the billy goat curse of the Cubs, Right, where the Cubs were cursed by Billy Goat Tavern owner William Sienis for being asked to leave Wrigley Field along with his goat in 1945. And so uh, William just was very upset and sent a telegram to the Cubs saying, you will not win another World Series. And they didn't for 70 years. And the Cubs like, tried many things to try and lift the supposed curse um, other than like be a good team. Um, or maybe you thought of the Madden curse, if y'all are familiar with that one, where whatever ends up happening is uh, football players who are placed upon the cover of Madden, uh, Madden football, the video game, seem to always get hurt or be terrible the year after they're placed on the cover, right? And so in most of the ways that we think of curses, we think of words or, or actions purposely placed 
to inflict harm on someone or something. Right? It, it typically involves a catalyst to, to change their future, um, of causing something terrible to happen that they didn't deserve, or maybe if they did, to happen extra beyond what they deserved. Right? Or, or if it's something that they, yeah, it wasn't this normal consequence. Um, it seemed like an intervention over someone as, as extra punishment or abnormal uh, negative um, consequences that were coming their way. So like a parent who's explained to a child that if they, if they, if they lie, it breaks the bond of trust, and there are subsequent consequences that come along with that, right? Like maybe you're not going to have as much screen time or you're not going to have a friend that comes over because now that this bond of trust is broken... There are these extra consequences that begin to happen. It is not that those, um, those punishments are extra as a means by which to inflict harm on the child. Rather, those punishments are a natural consequence for that action or for that action of disobedience. So too, then, are God's curses here in the passage. Right? They're the explained consequences for everyone and everything that have happened because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, with the exception of the serpent. The curses in this passage are all about a part of the natural consequences for their disobedience toward God. Right? In chapter 2, we learn that God told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In essence, right, don't try to become the arbiter of truth and goodness. Trust in God for that. Right? If you try and do it for yourself independently of me, then that independence will actually bring about death for you. And so as we come to chapter 3 of Genesis, we begin to see what the actual form of that death is. Right? Their death comes at the very end of Genesis chapter 3. It is in their being exiled from the Garden of Eden. And they're no longer having access to this tree of life, as it says in verse 22. And they're no longer having access now to immortality. And so, as they're kicked out of the garden, as they're kicked out from the ever-present relationship and fellowship with God, they die. They die spiritually. Right? They're given consequences for their sin. We find out that apart from God, though, now everything has cursed and been cursed. Thus, all of the curses that God articulates here to Adam and Eve are merely God's explaining the consequences of what happens apart from his relationship with it and his presence in it. He's not creating a new way to get back at Adam and Eve. He's not like, man, they did what I told them not to do. Now, that, that punishment that I told them originally, that wasn't good enough. I'm going to come down extra hard on them. That's not what's happening here. Rather, God is simply helping his children to understand what happens next in light of the fact that they were disobedient and in light of the fact of the disgust consequences that came before. So for some of you, you might feel like, why is Taylor talking about this that much? Isn't this like merely semantic? Um, are you playing semantic gymnastics, trying to let God off the hook for being mean and cruel here? Um, like, what's the difference? 
What's the difference, right? If he's in control of things, and why does it matter if he brings the curses or if he is just telling them that this is going to happen to them, right? Making it happen or letting it happen stink either way, right? Um, And you're right to some degree. But God is a God of justice and holiness, allowing for the punishment that he has already declared to them is not the same thing as bringing about extra punishment that was never declared beforehand. Right? The difference is whether he is describing or prescribing. Right? And this now it gets to the character of who God is. And so what we see here in these curses, or perhaps what we ought to call them instead of curses, is pronouncements, is that God is acting within his character. He is holy and just, but he's also merciful and kind. And that's what we see here when we look at this passage. And so I want to look at first the pronouncement against Eve, second the pronouncement against Adam, and then finally to look at God's grace that is given to them. So Eve's punishment, Adam's punishment, and God's grace. Eve's punishment, right? After the Lord speaks directly to, uh, to and curses the serpent, he turns to the woman, right, who will soon be named Eve. And in verse 16, it tells us, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. One second. I coached two lacrosse games yesterday, so my voice is going a little bit. At first glance, this may seem like God is putting a hex uh, upon her. It sounds like he's saying, not only are you going to die because of your insubordination, but now I'm going to make you hurt. But What God is speaking here is much the same as what the patriarchs would typically say to their children throughout Genesis on their deathbed. Um, For example, Noah after finding out that his son Ham had sort of taken advantage of his drunken state, um, and we're going to get to that passage in the spring, um, he had a malediction for Ham and Ham's Ham's child, where he said, Cursed be Canaan. Canaan is Ham's son. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. Noah doesn't have the power to make that happen, and nor does he have the power to invoke God somehow to make that happen either. But what he is saying here is because of this transgression, because of the fact that you are not living rightly and goodly and you are apart apart from God and his grace, this is the type of thing that's going to happen to you. May God's presence and favor pass from you because of what you have done. It's the same format that Jacob follows in Genesis chapter 49 as he speaks to each of his sons. Um, If you were to go through and read it there as well. In those curses or blessings, these patriarchs are reciting the natural consequences based upon their son's actions. And it's talking about whether God's favor will be upon them or whether it will be withdrawn from them. They're asking for God to give to them favor or take that away based on what they have done and have lived. And that's what's going on here. 
as God's favor and presence is something that's going away from Adam and Eve as they're exiled from the garden, then it is that these consequences naturally flow. Whereas God created man and woman to be fruitful and multiply as they move outside of the temple garden of Eden, that multiplication process is going to be hard and even painful as it says here. But what type of pain is this talking about? For most of my life, I've thought that the pain that's being talked about here is a discussion of, of physical pain. Right? That on, only on this side of the exile will it be difficult and, and painful for the woman giving birth. Um, and while it certainly is true um, that it is painful, uh, I'm not in any way trying to cheapen that, uh, ladies, who have, uh, who have gone through it. Um, this passage has the other kind of pain far more in view. This is talking about the anxiety that a woman experiences throughout the entire childbearing process. The anxiety and pain of whether or not she'll be able to get pregnant. The pain over whether the baby will remain healthy in the womb. The pain over whether the baby will survive the birthing process. The pain and anxiety over whether she will survive the birthing process. Now, praise the Lord that we live in a time when the health concerns for women and babies who are pregnant are not what they used to be thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, but regardless, those pains and anxieties are still present even in our world of modern medicine. So how much more into the context in which God is speaking here? Right? This proclamation of consequences fits with what God told Adam and Eve that they're to do, right? They're to be fruitful and multiply. But out of his presence, that process is going to be hard. It's going to be anxiety riddled. It's going to be painful. Right? And I know that that is true for many of us here. Those of us who struggled with infertility or miscarriage, those of us who've <clears throat> had painful or, or troubling and scary pregnancies, or those maybe even... Um, who've never been able to have children, who've lost children. Right? This passage is telling us that though we are called to be fruitful and multiply because of the fact that we live in an exiled world, apart from the way it was intended to be, where everything is working together harmoniously, because of uh, that sin and disobedience that is ever-present within us, that is why it is hard to fulfill this command and this purpose. Because we're separated from our Lord and all is affected. But this passage goes further. And it's again very easy to misinterpret what it is saying. Right? It tells us that the woman's desire shall be for her husband, but he will rule over her. Right? And so, you know, at first glance, this sounds like exactly what the Barbie movie is trying to address, right? This is like patriarchy and more patriarchy. If y'all have seen the Barbie movie, you know what I'm talking about. Um, the short answer is no, that's not what this is talking about. Um, this is directly speaking again to the blessing and purpose that God spoke over Adam and Eve when she was created. Eve was to be a helper suitable to him. And we talked about what that meant, right? That that meant more like partner because even God is described as a helper. It's not meant to be somebody who is weaker than, right? It is truly somebody who serves alongside of. 
Right? So men and women are to partner together in mutual submission and love for one another as governors over the creation. So we now learn that because of Adam and Eve's eating of the tree, that partnership, that co-laboring is going to be fraught with difficulty. Right? The word desire that is used here is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 4 with a very famous verse, verse uh, chapter 4, verse 7, when it says that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. In other words, it wants you, not because it loves you, because it wants to devour you, right? It wants to control you. So in light of sin, in light of a world where we live in hiding from one another, uh, in our shame, it's a natural consequence that we would be in a struggle for power with one another, The relationship of love and mutual submission that God calls us to in Christ in Ephesians chapter 5, this turns into one of tyranny and mistreatment that we have for one another. God's pronouncement to Eve really has to do with the way that sin affects our relationship with other humans. It addresses our, our inner turmoil that keeps us from trusting others or loving others well. And it addresses our tendency to misunderstand others or worse, to use others for our own selfish purpose. Although it's addressed to Eve, God's word here has implications for all of us. We are all tempted to become consumed by anxiety, to try to control outcomes and to control other people, to bend others to our will. When we are apart from God and his presence, that is the way that we live. Sin, we see, wreaks havoc not only on our relationships with God, but on our relationships with ourselves and with others. So second, let's look at Adam's punishment. Much like what we see with Eve, Adam's curses are also a pronouncement of natural consequences that come from this life of exile, life apart from God. Whereas before, man and woman were to be able to eat freely of any tree in the garden where they were to have dominion over the creation, they're now going to struggle in relationship with the creation. Right? Verse 17 says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. Where there was abundance, there's now going to be scarcity. Where there was provision, there's now going to be sweat and toil. Where the earth was to work with Adam, in a sense, right? Adam, whose name literally means earth itself, right, is now going to be difficult. This relationship between man and earth and creation, there's this difficult relationship. It's, again, an unyielding partner. Things like farming are going to be hard. And not only that, but in exile, there will be unproductive vegetation, thorns and thistles, things that you cannot eat, things that threaten to overtake, to hide or choke out the very things that we're trying, um, uh, that we need to live and we need to thrive. 
So this proclamation stands against God's call again on mankind to have dominion over creation, but in in subservience to God, because Adam and Eve sought dominion apart from God or even next to or above God. And so they've thrown now everything out of whack. They've thrown everything off. Now the relationship between mankind and everything is broken. Where there was harmony, there's now struggle. Where there was shalom, peace, there is now frustration. And while we don't necessarily experience the lack of food that is being described here or kind of the agricultural or farming struggle that is being described, Genesis 3 nonetheless is describing all aspects of cultivation and creation um, that we would do in our work. For no longer is the rest of creation fully cooperating with us. So we experience this in so many different ways. That's why we sang the song, Your labor is not in vain, because thorns and thistles, it feels like it is working against us at all times and in all things, right? Where you have traffic that caused you to miss an incredibly important meeting or kids getting sick on the day that you needed to actually be in work for a big presentation or a computer crashing after you forgot to save the very most important document that you had, right? You can't find your keys or your car won't work or your dog ate your homework, right? These are the things that we experience in this world. The creation is not working with us. It's working against us in this way. It's not in harmony. So, is there grace here? Um, And that's our third point. There is grace. God's grace in this passage. And we see it in two particular ways. The first is not obvious. We see that there is grace in the exile itself. While the end of the chapter doesn't look like it, God is gracious here nonetheless. And that, um, God says, that they, that is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will not allow for man to continue to live in this cursed state forever. That's a form of grace. Though it would be within God's good judgment to condemn mankind to a state of exile, right? Living from Him forever. That's not what He wants. In His love, He wants what is good for us. Right? God is patient with his people. God is cra- patient with his creation. Though he is just, he is patient. Right? He does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, as it tells us in 2 Peter. So the exile is a way for God being to be patient with us, giving us time and opportunity to turn toward him in repentance, to place him as the center of our heart and faith, as the one who judges good and evil, not ourselves. That's first. Second, we see that there is grace in the preparation for the exile. In verse 21, we see that God made skins for Adam and Eve to wear as clothing. After their disobedience, when they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed, they made clothes for themselves. They made loincloths made of fig leaves. We're talking pretty bare bare bones here. Um, Not not really going to do very much for them. right? They were really nothing. As they were able to do very little for themselves, God has done for them what they actually needed. 
he has clothed them in a robe. Right? When we hear this, think more of the type of robe like uh, Joseph's many-colored robe. Um, and later in Genesis, he's given them those garments, covering them, protecting them, and caring for them even as they are exiled. And it's no far stretch to say that he has clothed us far more sufficiently now than he ever did here. View this as a foreshadowing of the type of clothing that he is going to do for us. Because as I've said, I've said the word exile a whole lot throughout this sermon. Um, Now, what do I mean when I say that? Um, I mean that mankind had been forced out of the temple home of God. That is what Eden was. It's the place where God dwelt with his people, the place where God walked with them in the cool of the day, where the one powerful enough to create everything was so intimately in touch with everything that he knew it by name and he was walking with them regularly. So how has God clothed us even more sufficiently now? Well, we live on this side of that exile of being kicked out of the temple because God's presence cannot be around those that are unclean or otherwise it would actually harm us. God has always made a way to be with us. Um, He told the Israelites to create a traveling temple, what we called a tabernacle, so he might be with them. And he gave them clothes, special clothes to wear and special ways to wash of themselves so that they might be near. The same was true later when they built a permanent temple, right? They had special clothes to wear uh, as they were able to maybe approach him a a little bit at a time where they could access him. But because of Jesus, we are now clothed in priestly robes of righteousness where we can access our God and walk with him in the very cool of the day. Because though the curses have been pronounced on mankind and all of creation, Christ became that curse for us so that we might be exalted and brought back into the presence of him. We may try and clothe ourselves with terrible fig leaves at times, like loincloths of work, Loincloths of achievement, of money, of influence, those things that do absolutely nothing for us, that all they do is take us further from God and cause us to hide more from Him. But if we turn to Him in faith, God promises to clothe us in, clothe us in garments of righteousness. For by faith, as we turn to Jesus Christ, we are promised that His righteousness becomes ours. And not only that, we are promised that his inheritance becomes ours. That those very things that we lost as we were exiled actually become ours because in Christ we inherit the very earth. So may we turn to him in faith. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, we thank you that though we long like Adam and Eve, to be the ones that decide what is right and good, what is good and evil, and that takes us from you, that causes us to live in a a form of exile from you. Lord, we thank you that you seek us again and again, and in Christ Jesus, you have robed us in righteousness that we might be with you. And so, Father, I pray that we would be with you as we turn to Jesus in faith. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Amen.